0: This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Tidalist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Tidalist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for a second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Tidalist.
1: Welcome back to the Earning Edge Podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance. I am Cameron McCormick from Altus Performance, and we're glad that you're listening. End of the year, I think this may be our last podcast of the year. We may sneak in another one. We wanted to do something a little bit different because we're kind of in that year-end mode where with all of our clients, we are reflecting back on 2018, looking forward to some planning to 2019. So we wanted to kind of put a little bit of, I guess, change the pace a little bit. A couple weeks ago, we asked you to send us your questions. And as we personally we're looking back on 2018, kind of deciding, well, what were the accomplishments we were most proud of if there was anywhere that we we fell short and kind of going through that whole reflection process. And the podcast kept coming up as something that we were really, really proud of and a project that was exciting us to continue to do. Right, Cam?
0: Indeed. Indeed. And on that end, I guess, when we look back and 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 reflect, I think it's something that we encourage all of our athletes to do and including uh, encouraging those that listen we'd love you to reflect back and that was the stimulus or impetus for reaching out on the socials on instagram whatnot and asking for your input your questions what are you curious about it's very hard for us as you can imagine to reach as many people as we feel like we could possibly reach or want to reach golf instruction golf coaching is works really well on a one-to-one, very hard on a one-to-many, but there are people out there that want their questions answered and that's what we're here for. So when we heard from the umpteen people that we heard from, we got a great cross-section of questions covering working with elite players, working with amateur players, working on skills, working on mindset, working on those things that would contribute towards just improvement. And there were some questions that uh, related to improvement outside of golf. And I think that the lessons that we learn on improvement do have generalizability across whatever you're trying to improve on.
1: Yeah. So should we jump in?
0: Let's jump in. Let's dive in. I guess from the top end, we'll announce the person that contributed the question and announce the question. Then we're just going to bounce back and forth. So the first question comes from uh, Coach Shambo, PGA. Thank you very much for the question. Would love to hear how you periodize a program for elite players. And I think at the start of this, it's important to, I guess, unpack the question for the general audience periodization. What does that mean, Corey?
1: So I look at it two different ways. One, I guess the traditional or the way that I learned periodization is from the concept of long-term athletic development to where you've got kind of a preparatory phase where you're training and you're getting better and you're developing certain skills. You've got a competition phase where you're kind of in the heat of things. And then I guess a transition phase where then there's some rest and recovery and looking forward to a new year. I think that's a pretty basic overview of Mm -hmm. the idea of periodization and how a coach is kind of structuring, I guess, a macro cycle of development, like this long-term development of of
0: macro. What does that mean? Long term, long what time big, frame?
1: Big picture. And I think that that might be where I really don't see the real world application of that sort of thing mm-hmm. because our rest phase, our transition phase from one season to the next is not very long. And so it's it maybe. No be, matter
0: whether you're a tour professional or amateur golfer, right? right?
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, for most of our players, there's a pretty dense tournament schedule. They're in competition phase for the majority of the time. So maybe this, the idea of long-term athletic development and, and where periodization falls in is more applicable to other sports. I'm not really sure, but mm-hmm. in ours, I think that it works better on micro cycles, like yeah. tighter feedback loops. So if I had to answer, how do we periodize our training programs, mm-hmm. they would be on really short, tight feedback loops. Two to four weeks. Yeah. And depending on how much competition was happening in between there. So if you've got a lot of uh, data, meaning if you've performed a few times, basically our goal is to then take the information from that Identify some performance oppor- some performance gaps, mm-hmm. some opportunities for you to get better. Maybe say, here are what our four statistical goals should be for this next phase of competition, and then let's design a training plan, a menu of tasks to have a direct impact on those four or five things. So, I think tighter feedback loops work better in golf. I think I don't know that I uh, explicitly try to periodize. Thanks, but that's like the feedback loop that I would work in. Yeah. understanding the question maybe
0: a little deeper. Clearly it's coming from a coach, Coach Shambo, and, and clearly he's talking about elite players, but I think there's uh, learning and lessons to come out even for recreational players or those that are sub-elite. And then from the coach's side, looking through the- Sub-elite. Co- sub-elite. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I like that. There you go.
0: <laughs> yep. I'm going to throw different terms at you this morning that I just uh, just found out in Australia. But nonetheless. From looking through the coach's lens, I think it's most important just to simplify periodization down to a recognition that sometimes it's important to prioritize the skills, the ball control, the things that would then aggregate to improvements in score. And sometimes there's a need to understand that we have to work on the building blocks of improving score. And sometimes that's movement and sometimes that's different strength and conditioning programs you have to go through that are going to have a short term call it a cost or um, integration period, a little friction on the front end, a little heavy lifting uh, before they become much easier to integrate on the golf course. And so therefore the starting point for periodization is understanding where a player is on their competitive calendar and going back all the way to one of my earliest experiences with um, one of the, the most elite players I've ever, I've ever coached Jordan Spieth. It was the first day he stepped in front of me with his dad, July six, two 2006 for an initial evaluation. And, he'd just come off a great period of playing competitive golf, just won his most recent event by 18 shots, shooting 64, sorry, 63 in the final round. And the most important thing that I could do above and beyond testing his skills on that particular day was understanding where in his competitive calendar he was. And it was the middle of the summertime, which meant he had two months yet of competitive golf still to play. And closing out that initial evaluation session, I said to him, much to his disappointment, look, there's not very much I can do with you today. You have all of the skills you need to play great golf for the rest of the summertime. And as I mentioned much to his disappointment, but yet it was serving the need of giving the player what they needed rather than what they wanted. He wanted to come in and he wanted me to tell him what he needed to do to improve his swing. And at that point in time, there wasn't necessarily anything he needed to do to improve his results. Therefore there wasn't anything he needed to do to improve his swing. But yet at the same time, what I did is I outlined by I emailed to his dad later that evening, here's what it would look like essentially when we started to work on his off-season. When September came, October came and he wasn't playing very much competitive golf so we could get him ready for what he was about to do the following season which was level up, essentially play longer yardages against uh, much, um, I guess, deeper fields of competition. And so going back, kind of noting the points of importance that I, have, I think what I've just said is Start with an understanding of where a person is in their competitive calendar, recognizing that there are windows of opportunity to use a popular term in in coaching for technical intervention, strength and conditioning intervention, even mindset intervention that need to happen away from competition. But then when competition comes or in lead up to competition, we need to shift our priorities as coaches to skills, which means skills-based tasks, which means a lot of golf course activity. And so your. Training programs might shift 90-10, 90% performance on course or off course into 10% uh, technical maintenance, whereas I guess to throw a percentage out there at you, when we're in a block of time where we are doing the heavy lifting of technique change or modifications in strategy mindset and strength and conditioning, it might be 50-50, 50% of the time spent on things that would help a player build a stronger capacity. Now, last point before I let you, because I know you want to say something, Um, last point of importance there for the recreational player, the recreational player generally isn't playing as much competition. That competition might be falling under the heading of their Wednesday or Saturday game. Never guessed exactly. And so the things that they would be doing that would fall into the context of periodization might be, I'm going to practice on Monday, that which would provide me better contact or better ball control. But Tuesday and Wednesday, and lead up to what might happen on Thursday through Saturday, which is might might be my member guest or might be the club championship, would be shifting the intent and shifting the focus to ball control and the skills of playing the game.
1: Yeah, and I think the only thing that I, I would add to that is that I think as coaches, you know, I remember reading about periodization for the first time. I mean, like, Oh my gosh, this is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Like this nice, neat separation between first I do this and then I can go into competition phase. And so as a coach, as you're reading it, it's like, it's beautiful. This is nice and structured framework that I can work within. And I think as you dig into it as a coach, you realize that there's a lot more complex problem solving that you're having to do on the fly and you're having to adapt your plan like constantly. Mm -hmm. And so it just can't ever be that neat. We can't, we can't go phase to phase to phase. We're, we're kind of reading and reacting. We're bouncing back kind of in between as the needs of the player dictate that. So
0: indeed. Yeah. Coach Shambo, thanks for the question. That was awesome. Yeah, very good.
1: Okay. Uh, Next question is from uh, Marcy Simmons, who is the mother of a couple of our clients here at Altus, a couple of young players who are, yeah, they're winning. They're at a a phase of their development where they're kind of that, we we would call them aspiring athletes. Yeah, for sure. They're rising. Yeah. yeah, And 10, 11, they're in an age division where they're winning a lot of events. And so she's got a, a good question that we hear quite a bit is, what age do you deem appropriate for a child to focus solely on one sport? And so we're getting into more long-term athletic development stuff here. Yeah, right? and, skill,
0: and skill specialization.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you want so, to
0: take a step out first?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think that first you have to look at, well, what would you want to gain out of playing other sports? And I think that there's a few things that you have to consider here. I think as coaches – we, we, our ears perk up when we hear that we have a, a athlete in front of us that has played a lot of other sports and we get excited because, okay, cool. We're going to have this canvas to work with of an athlete. We're going to have someone who has developed these fundamental movement skills, this physical literacy that's going to serve us well. They're going to have these coordinative skills that they've and developed. serve them other, well. Yeah. And serve them well. It's going to make our life really easy because right. they're, they're likely going to be able to implement changes athletically, dynamically pretty easily. So I think that in, in kind of backdooring into the answer to that question, it would be, well, what do we want out of playing other sports that as a coach, that's what I want. Mm -hmm.
0: You mentioned two terms right there that I think are necessary to unpack from the standpoint of understanding what is it that we want. You mentioned physical literacy. So express what you mean by that. And the quantitative capacities that may be able to be pulled or leveraged from other sports.
1: Yeah. So I, I don't think that I could list the fundamental movement skills as and, they're defined. And but, you don't need yeah. to, but
0: let's what right. are fundamental movement skills and ability to like, catch, kick, run, run kick, just yep.
1: coordinative abilities yep. is kind of how we refer to them. Like uh, just an athletic skills. Mm-hmm. Like you can move, you, you can move your body. You've got the proprioception, you've got power, you've got sk- agility, you've got speed, you've, you develop all that yeah. stuff.
0: So back in the day when I did a lot of work in the developmental arena, early in my coaching with youth players that were sampling golf as a sport and we were, though they were five years old to eight to nine years old, when we were introducing the capacities to develop those physical literary skills and a lot of it was about catching and kicking and throwing etc question that i was asked by players specifically importantly and also parents at the same time wondering whether they're whether what we're doing in our junior golf development programs we're going to help a player improve to amplify their ability to play golf better was why are we doing this right and the answer that that i gave is well before you walk you learn to crawl before you crawl you learn to roll over and then once you've learned to walk then slowly but surely you develop these motor abilities that turn into a soft gate of run and then sprinting and so there's there's foundational abilities that then are we'll call them precursors to developing something that exists at a much higher operating range or a much higher level and that's where the things that we develop through general play in the in the park, general play on the school fields, or specific play in other sports, contribute to physical liter- literacy and coordinative abilities that then would help help golf. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. Now, I've got a question inside of this question that I think is a nice one to go back and forth on, is what are those sports that you feel are most strongly correlated to contributing to improvements or development of golf?
1: Yeah, so... That's a really, really good one because it's the one that I've thought a lot about. Like I had Maxime Blandin, Mm -hmm, French, yeah, French guy. Who his ball speed is like his club head speed. Uh, He moves so fast. Mm -hmm. And so one of my when I first saw him and and he's I was seeing these TrackMan numbers like swinging six iron well over a hundred miles per hour. And I'm thinking like where did this come from? Where did this come from? (laughs) So I asked him. you know, and and we had talked about this before we got into hitting balls, but he was a boxer. Oh my. And so he did a lot of boxing. So you think about like ground force reaction, like, like using the grounds yeah. and, mm-hmm. and the segmental sequencing. Yeah. So I mean, mm-hmm. clearly, uh, so I think that, that on that day, I was like, I want yeah. everyone to be boxer, boxer like, <laughs> because if they could do that.
0: Let me piggyback on that. Brody Smith, another good example yeah. we, we both work with. I mean, talking club speed at 120, 122 miles an hour with very little experience of playing golf through his adolescent years, a little bit. But moreover, where does it come from? It comes from Frisbee, which is segmental sequencing from the ground up unwind lower body first, upper body, let the arm lag back in adduction against the body and then fling that Frisbee out. And that's amazing crossover into the ability to create speed in golf, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but at the same time, like Andrea Pavan, Mm -hmm. he's a swimmer. Yep. Like other than maybe him being a swimmer indicates some kind of Like physical, like, cause it takes a certain kind of body to be a good swimmer, right? Like a Michael, you think like Michael Phelps, like, yeah, I I don't know that there was any development. I don't know how those athletic skills translate into golf from like swimming, but I mean, I think we're thinking traditionally, like, I I guess I think of it as basketball, baseball, football. I just know that if you're competitive in those, you're a good athlete, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so I don't know that I could say exactly what, like like in boxing and in Frisbee, we can say like, okay, here are these clear correlations. I, or I guess like just object, you know, object control. Object control. Yeah, stick yep. stick sports, stick Gra- and ball sports.
0: Ground-based striking. Yeah. I, I think of hockey, field hockey and ice hockey right. as being a great transfer sport into golf. I think of tennis or racket sports as right. great transfer sports into golf, where you're generally working on both sides of the body. You're generally working from the ground up and creating the horsepower in the movement. And you're having to, in most of those examples, develop the coordinative abilities to hit a moving ball, which isn't required in golf. Balls rolling down the creek and sure. you're trying to hit it out of yeah. the water, or it's moving right. the tree and you're trying to hit it out of the water. But nonetheless, not required in golf, but yet they amplify the ability to hit a stationary ball. So those are the things that um, most of the sports that I, f- I found most strongly correlate to a person being a good striker of a golf ball baseball included, except with baseball, baseball, the wrinkle is since you're controlling a barrel, curved surface against curved surface, barrel against the ball. Two round objects. Yeah. Two round objects. You don't have to develop the necessary control of the angle of the face meeting relative to the path of the, um, the tools working at to affect curve and to affect spin. So baseball players come with a lot of horsepower, but very little face control to where they have to learn that front end.
1: So, if Going back looking, to our question, yeah, yeah, right. No, but but I, th- I think that's good because we're kind of back during the answer here. Because you you look at well, what is the value of playing other sports? So first, you have the physical piece, but then mm-hmm. there's the motivational piece for younger players and the social piece, and I think just growing that kind of competitive fire mm-hmm. and a team sport mostly, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I think those are the those are the values that you're getting out of that early involvement, and What's then the there, cost? yeah, exactly. So then there comes the time of well. It's not likely that you're going to be able to excel with the time on task that's required to excel in multiple sports. So there's going to be a need to specialize. And I think, and I know that you'll be able to correct me if I'm wrong. Like, if we're just looking at what the research would say, they would say, like, what, eight to 12 is the sampling years. Mm-hmm. And then 12 to maybe 15, 15 is when we start to invest. And mm-hmm. then 15 is, or no, 12 to 15 specialize and then really invest in those later years. So I I would say that if I was just had to just throw out a number to answer Marcy's question here, like 12 seems to be a pretty appropriate age, but I think that there's a lot of other things that could go into determining if that's right. And and so, but for Marcy's case, there's the motivational piece that we talked about. Her kids are so eat up with golf. They love golf so, so much. I think that you would be hard pressed to tell them to do something other than golf because they love it so much. For sure. And
0: one of the important points that I was wanting to make in answering this question. I was about to interject on the front end was the knowledge when someone sits across from you, whether it's in, in on the lesson tier on the golf course, you're riding in a golf cart with them and they say, I'm all in, I'm pushing all of my chips across the table. I'm going to put them all in on golf. That's a big consideration to make. At at that point in time, they're saying that they're so invested in this that all their energies, both when they're awake and when they're asleep, are directed towards being the best version of themselves just in this specific specific domain. Um, in, In this case, we're talking about golf or any other sport for that matter, that I don't want to ever dampen that fire. I don't want to ever dampen that that, that, that ferocious attitude of, I'm going to get good at this, uh, and you just sit back and watch. You want to, as a coach, and in, in my belief as a parent, encourage that. When someone demonstrates that desire, that motivation towards getting great at something, what you want to do is you want to lay out the roadmap for them. And at the same time, as laying out the roadmap, there are, here's the turns to take, but here are also the turns that are um, would be poor turns to take, the pitfalls. And yeah. so inside of that question, what's the problem with specializing? Burnout is probably the most well-documented or well-discussed one. But as a player specializes, there are ways to avoid burnout. And that's with going back to our first answer is, of the periodization understanding there's a happy marriage between competing happy marriage between the volume of practice and there's happy happy marriage between being just a normal person and not being quote-unquote a golfer um, before being a person you're a person first you're a son or a daughter you're a friend to other people you're a student and so having a well-rounded view of your interests and managing those is probably the easiest way to avoid burnout
1: the question that I have is that I'd be interested to hear your take on the fear that parents have is that they see the need to be recruited by my freshman year, or I've got mm-hmm. to make sure that I'm playing in these tournaments. I'm getting into these AJGA tournaments. So it seems that early and earlier, there seems to be this pressure to specialize early because you need that time on task to get into those tournaments and, and it succeed at an early age. The question I had for you. How important or how much of a predictor is success at 10 to success at 18, in your opinion? I can't specifically answer that other
0: than to say that when you look back at AJGA results at 13 or 14 years old, there's a relatively heavy correlation between the players that are successful when they first start AJGA level golf and those that continue to be successful. There are other players that over time through their teenage There's years some turnover. Yeah, will, will climb. Going back even a step further, when you look at the records on U.S. kids' worlds, there is still a heavy number of those that were successful back when they were 7, 8, 9 in that, to where they're successful in AJG-level golf. But it's not a if-this-then-that scenario. Just because you're not successful at one level doesn't mean you can't continue to develop your skills. So that's an argument for... Both, actually. It's, it's agnostic, quite frankly. Okay. Yeah, it, it doesn't argue either side of that. It says you can be successful as long as you understand where the pitfalls are. You know, if you're starting from behind in a race, you've got to run faster than everyone else, which means sure. you, you've got to do more work. The work has to be more intelligent to close that gap. Now, you may be starting from a later period, further behind, but you may have a greater depth of skills that you're bringing from other sports and therefore the early development is much more accelerated, a quick responder, so to speak. Whereas if you're a person starting ahead, your job, what what are the pitfalls? Your your job is not resting your laurels. Your job is to make sure that you treat every day as an opportunity to continue to extend your lead rather than rest on your laurels and uh, become complacent. Sitting on your hands, doing less work to where, even though it's not, evident in the minutes or the moments of practice realistically because of your inactivity or your, or your reduced application inactivity you're allowing the competition to close that gap
1: right and maybe a recommendation for those players that because they you know of their own volition because they loved golf so much at an early age they chose to to specialize maybe earlier than others mm-hmm maybe a, a requirement that you, you would have is that it's necessary for them to supplement that or, or in support of that goal to pursue some of those physical literacy pieces Without on their doubt. own.
0: Which is one of, the, one of the points I was going to make as well is that are, you, are we really ever purely specialized? Most youth golfers that we work with are involved in some level of strength and conditioning program. Right. They're doing something at school in terms of PE or in the playground that would check the box of a different sport, throwing, catching, kicking, running, etc. So truly, are we ever really specialized? The answer would be no. Yeah. And that echoes your comment just before of do something supplementary that allows for the benefits of dipping your toes into other worlds, but yet at the same time allows for you to check the box of time on task, which is essentially saying hours of activity toward the end of developing your skills so that you can yeah. develop at the speed that you want to develop that,
1: and so maybe to recap our answer there yeah. is that. we fifteen minutes. The most important piece is that there's some autonomy in that decision from the child.
0: Motivation, purpose, yeah, exactly. Purpose is the engine that drives all elite performance because through that purpose, a defined purpose. If I want to be good at something, then there's this intrinsic motivation inside of that to do the work.
1: I'll do what's necessary. Exactly,
0: and then as long as you're exposing that person that wants to do what's necessary to the right information, then you're adding to the fire the most high octane fuel you're not burning kerosene which is a slow burning fuel you're burning rocket fuel and you've got to have enough rocket fuel to go don't you because it's quick burning fuel but it'll get you far fast
1: yeah marcia hopefully answered that question <laughs> right there as thoroughly as you hope
0: yeah okay we were supposed to hit on these every like each question was supposed to take three to five minutes to answer yeah, i think we're we like about 30 do, minutes into know, this thing we may do a part two <laughs> right.
1: yeah we got a lot to say on this stuff
0: Okay, we got Matt Stoya. What's the most important thing? I hope I got that right, Matt. What's the most important thing for a junior golfer to master and perfect before the collegiate level? So I'll take a stab at this one first. Teed up, ready to go. Junior golfers mastering and perfect before the collegiate level. Well, clearly when you're a developing junior golfer, there's a big difference in biological development through your teenage years. But Understanding that on the front end kind of creates context to my first part answer to this, which is speed, uh, the ability to hit it far. When you're 12, 13 years old, you're graduating to longer tees and you're graduating to a deeper level of competition, hopefully when you're moving from local to regional to national, potentially even international competition. So speed is an ability to hit the ball far is definitely one of those. But if you're a player who is rate limited, meaning you're a late bloomer, late developing physically, then whether that be just in terms of going through those years of maturation or whether it's your frame, then I think it's important to understand that you can still close that competitive gap in other ways. So we're going generally, and we'll talk specifically generally speed, but specifically also you can close that gap through other means that we'll we'll describe right now. And so the first means would be uh, short game and putting. I don't know that there's a junior golfer that I've ever met aside from maybe one or two that have elite levels of short game ability. And that's both the simple shots, but just as much a deep toolbox of uh, shot arrays that you need around the greens from all types of grasses, all, all types of lies, and an ability to hit different trajectories with different spins. And then uh, putting proficiency. And the beauty of those is as long as you can swing a sand wedge at about 65, 70 miles an hour, which uh, most junior golfers that I've met that are 13, 14 years old can do, then Speed isn't one of the differentiators to developing or, or, or one of the constraints to developing a really good short game. It's really about information and it's about exploration, spending time in appropriate types of practice activities uh, that allow you to develop the deep toolbox that causes your short game to be a strength and closes the distance gap, if you will. And the same goes for, for putting. Work on the right things that give you ball control try of skills of I can start it online, I can hit it at the right pace, my intended pace, and I can evaluate what the pace and line needs to be, which is the skill of green reading. And green reading is not just direction as well. It's about direction. It's about slope. It's about understanding all of the conditions that affect the ball's roll on the green. So that's a perceptual skill. Uh, you can develop those three without being the strongest player in the field. It's about a set of skills that you develop over time through through practice, the perceptual skills, the touch skills built on top of a foundation of really good technique. And so those are the three things that I think for me differentiate a golfer skill at junior levels inside of the ability to control a ball from tee box to green. I talked about the speed there, but just as much, it's about having a... Predictable ball flight, start direction and a curve that you can step up to the ball and know that it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to curve more or curve less, but it's always going to curve in that one direction. So predictability is another separator for a junior golfer to continue to scale before they get to college.
1: Okay. That covers most of it there. I mean, if I was going to come up with a composite of like all the college players that Mm -hmm. I've coached, like what do they all kind of do similar? And I know there's certainly uh, exceptions to this. They all find the center of the face. Really regularly. They hit it really, really solid. And I think that there's probably benchmarks that we would have to the speed point for that. Mm -hmm. Have you seen a college player with less than 90 miles per hour, six iron speed? Yes. Very few though. Very few. So, I mean, in my mind, there's kind of like that little, and I guess that those players would obviously be excelling at those areas that you covered of the short game pieces. But I think generally that's kind of the benchmark they're hitting in the middle of the face and they curve it one direction Mm -hmm. for the most part. So, I mean, if I was going to simply answer that question, that's kind of what I would be looking at because I feel like I've seen college players with some short game stuff that I think needs some real work, some chipping stuff that needs some real work. And then if we're just talking hard skills, but most of them are hitting it really solid.
0: Yeah, in and in a previous podcast episode, we had Claude Harmon on and he talked about having a strength, a well-defined strength, something you do really well. And that goes a long way to expressing all the way back down to developing as a junior yeah. what you should be looking to find.
1: The next question was from WX Chorus 30 Kind of building on that that last question was, m- what are the most important skills college golfers need to acquire to take their game to the next level? So now we're talking about, we we discussed what do we need to be uh, successful in college, and now what do we need to be, be doing to kind of climb that next rung of mm-hmm. competition?
0: Yeah. Starting broad, when we're talking generally, it's a really hard thing to answer because when you're talking collegiate players... There's a wide range. Wide range of scoring abilities and skill abilities. So sometimes when you're a perhaps a D2 or D3 player, there's still a need to do those things that we just expressed a junior golfer would need to do to develop their capacities to be elite. But if we're talking about players at the higher end of collegiate golf, they're probably playing in a top 100, top fi- top 75, or maybe even specifically tailoring the question down to the hundred or so players that are competing at a top 25 level school, I think that answer becomes far more specific. Do you want to give it a stab first with that lens?
1: Yeah. So for me, the progression that I think is most typical would be that if they're in that position to where they're in one of those schools and they're that kind of college player, there is a requisite level of hard skill proficiency. They're chipping, they're putting, they're ball striking. Mm -hmm. I think that what starts to separate is some of the soft skill work. Like how am I preparing for events that create some separation? This is stuff we've talked a lot about on a lot advantage, about yeah, yeah. competitive mm-hmm. advantage, because if you're t- playing in one of those top 25, you're good. You're good at golf. You play, you've played well, you've shot low scores, but can you start to close your range, tighten it to where the high end of that range becomes a lot lower? Your, your worst days are not so bad. And you do that through, training really effectively is that first pillar of soft skill, you know, identifying what are the areas that need the most improvement and how do I train them most effectively, most efficiently, especially when you're talking about a student athlete that's got other responsibilities outside of just their sport and their pursuit of, you know, professional golf. Two, how am I preparing for events? What's my readiness? And and I think that that is the skill that is probably most developed in college golf as they they're working with a the team. They're all working to go play the same golf course. They're playing practice rounds together. Hopefully they have a college coach who really that's, that's one of their biggest missions and objectives is to help get their, their player ready to, to shoot low scores and prepared to shoot low scores. And then you've got the mental piece that kind of as a, as a golfer matures, not only, you know, from age, but also you, you have more and more tournament competitive reps in hopefully there's some maturation that, that happens from that. There's some wisdom that comes from that experience. And so I think that really kind of emphasizing those kind of three pillars of those soft skills of training and preparation and psychology is what starts to really, really separate. If, if we were going to decide if we're going to buy stock in a college player, I think that, you know, outside of any extraordinary, I, I think that that's another Answer to the question is what Claude said. They've got to have the one thing that's just killer, that anchor skill that's just way better that, mm-hmm. that that really separates them. But then I feel like it's those soft skills that really start to develop throughout college, and then are would be a predictor as dangerous as guess, that is. To, as we yeah, can exactly right. <laughs> like like to have any chance of predicting. I know that's what I would be looking at if I was going to buy stock. I was going to be looking a to beautiful, see
0: beautiful response there. Uh, let's unpack it just a little bit deeper and try and surface something out there that's actionable. So you, in the three comments that you made, they're all of equal importance, but let me try and tee you up to respond a little deeper, to surface something a little bit more out of the mental skills. Parents oftentimes ask, or players oftentimes ask, when should I work with a sports psychologist, a mental guru? And sometimes there's a need, sometimes there's not a need. When would there be a need versus not a need is a different type of question that we won't touch just yet. It's hard not to be exposed to that which would cause you to develop a kind of a foundation of requisite mental skills just in competing at golf, whether that's competing against a field or just trying to get better on your own, on the golf course, on the practice range. So they're embedded into normal practice. There's a challenge of psychology, but yet there's next level development that I think becomes a separator for the players that are almost elite. So they're almost playing in college at that top 25 level, or they are playing in that in college at that top 25 level. And and they want to graduate then to the PGA tour. And that is when things are going bad, how do they put the tourniquet on, put the bandaid on and stop the bleeding? Or when things are going really good, they're four or five under maybe Two to three under through nine holes, and they're thinking into the future in terms of I need to close this round out. I just want to get it in the house at three under, or the mindset of No, 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 this is going to turn into a six under or I'm a, a seven. killer, I'm I'm a killer, exactly. Yeah. So, is there something in your experience, and I know there is, it's why I'm teeing you up here, that says this is how you would develop the grit, tenacity, stick with itness when things aren't great when you've got B or a C game that people could put into practice at home to develop that ability to prevent the bad round from getting really bad and on the other side of that when things are going really good how do we keep the foot on the
1: accelerator yeah so the first part of your question i think we could go into two different directions there of one if the b game or c game is there how do we make sure that it's not bad well that goes to a lot of the course readiness stuff a lot of the tactical pieces uh, how do i work my way around the golf course and maybe
0: with a limited set of weapons with a limited
1: set of weapons so mm-hmm. that we'll leave that to the side and we'll go more to what happens when adversity hits mm-hmm. and so an effective thing that i've seen is to have a plan in place and we call it the when the shit hits the fan oh, plan fan. you got to have <laughs> oh, a shit, shit plan yeah you got to have the plan in place because what we've all realized and we've all experienced is that when the shit does hit the fan, you don't have the presence and the state of mind to just, I'm going to come up with the solution to this because our brain is working in a way to where it's not seeing clearly. So we're not able to have that kind of wisdom in the moment typically. So I think that it's if if I was going to give something actionable that that gave someone something to work on so that they could be one of those players that overcomes adversity in mid round is to have something in place. So that means whether that be affirmations, like I have these three or four affirmations because I understand my performance in these situations. I know that I can have these three or four things that I've got to have come to mind very, very quickly to counter
0: this affirmation statements that you say to yourself, like right. this stops now, like
1: I refuse being here before yeah, exactly. and I can do this. Yeah. Or slow down. Like, you know, when things get going so quickly and that goes back to knowing your, your tendencies in these situations,
0: self-reflective capacity exactly. and, and having a almost a finger on your own pulse to know where your temperature, where the barometer is, right?
1: Cause I know when this happens, typically this goes badly. When I do this mm-hmm. understanding, have the understanding. And that comes through those, those really critical conversations that we have with players that, prompt that kind of self-reflection because, and and we, this is, you know, the question of, do you need a sports psychologist? Do you not like, how do you make sports psychology? How do you build this? Well, it needs to be embedded in these conversations that you're constantly having. It needs to be part of this continued conversation. So when we see a, a client after an event, there's a really thorough debriefing that happens sometimes even to where it's hole by hole so that not only we can understand as coaches what's going on out there, but then it kind of creates this awareness out of the, the athlete that says, you know what, if I hadn't gone through this process, I wouldn't have thought this through all the way to have this understanding for here are what my tendencies are. And so once that's in place, now you can have a plan in place. And that could be a written plan. A lot of times it is a written plan to where it's something that you're either actively writing before around, before an event, or it's something that you're just revisiting. You already have it written down. It could be something that's on a yardage book or, or, or on your phone, something, something that externalized
0: to where you don't right. have to rely on yourself in the moment when things are moving fast to remember those things. Exactly. Sometimes it could be like- Louis louis tasen's red dot that he used so famously to win the open championship yes louis tasen i was almost thinking it might be charles schwartz no charles won the masters louis won the the open or it could be jordan z on the ball that it's this constant reminder externalized it doesn't have to be his cpu that's bringing this up it's externalized to where okay that's my mental cue my mental trigger to zero in but like you say written down in your yardage book page you turn to and you see okay there's my affirmations okay it's hitting the fan right now. These are the things that I need to remind myself of one or two, very simple and very quick. How about weapons though? How about go-to weapons? Isn't that very, very important in those particular times?
1: Yeah. So we're talking, we're talking my go-to shot isn't working or or what I'm picturing right here. I'm not getting predictability. in, Mm -hmm. And so then I've got to have two, three, four other shots that I can go to that I know are, are predictable in this case. And that comes again from how do you prep? How do you prepare? You only know those things if you've defined those prior to, to the event. Mm-hmm. And so that's a regular practice here is those. And we've done the videos and we've talked about this before is having some kind of a weapons check in place so that you're, you're regularly assessing the health of all these different weapons and then figuring out, well, here are the known misses I got to understand what the known solutions are, what the most likely solutions are, and have that hierarchy of, you know, order of operations that you follow that if this happens, then I'm going to do this right Right. here. So yeah, I think that weapons check is another way that you can, that's part of the shit hits the fan plan is like, is your weapon working right now? Is it time to bail and go to the next weapon? Yeah,
0: cut bait and then uh, retool. And so go to the other side of that. How does a player at a collegiate level, or even quite frankly, at any level, expand their experience of playing well to where they can continue to play well versus when they're playing well thinking oh i want to get this in the house and start to almost play prevent defense right in the last two minutes of a football game it's very easy for a team to score because of all of a sudden the the defensive plan changes and they start playing prevent defense and it's it's therefore easier to to move the ball a short distance and incrementally down the field so
1: yeah i think that it's not realistic for us to expect someone to develop that skill unless they have experience in that situation. So that's the, that's the requisite, right? Yeah. They got to have that exposure therapy of being, and even failing in that situation. So again, they understand what the tendencies would be, but once that experience is there, I think something that we like to have conversations about, and we even have the conversations as from a coaching perspective and our performance as coaches is how do I perform at my best? What am I looking like What am I thinking when I'm at my best? And having a really good understanding of what would be observable to an outsider when I am on go, when I have everything working, what are the one, two or three things that someone would see and, and point out and say, well, this is what Cameron looks like when it's birdie time, when we're really, really going strongly and then making sure you're embodying those physical traits, even when you just want to get into the house is like, okay, no, I'm going to pick up on these and I'm going to continue to kind of embody this. Like I'm I'm priming myself for that physical presence. Right. And then there are, what are the one, two or three things that are mentally going on that's not going to be observable by somebody else when I am on that a game Mm -hmm. and then just making sure that those are the pieces that you're hanging on to and that you don't lose sight of what those are just because of the situation of, all right, I've got enough birdies. Let's just get this into the house right here. 18 is right over there. And so I think that again, it's just from that self-reflection, the self-awareness, understanding what those tendencies are, what you need to be, what are you at your a game?
0: Yeah. You just talked actually at length. We both have about reflection, which would be an after action review. What you refer to right there could be termed a before action review or preview where yes, we set ourselves a goal of performing at our best. We know kind of what that looks like and therefore we can document what we expect others to see as you're describing that before action review. But as, as part of that before action review, it's also about understanding what things would cause you to shift out of that behavior. So you have this primed anticipation of the action steps to get you back into that not only frame of mind, but physiological state that then would manifest in how a person would see you and how you would see yourself if you had a live video feed of your behavior on course. One last thing before we <laughs> yeah. put a bow on this I don't even remember what the question was. exactly. Namely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's collegiate player performing oh, yeah, at a higher yeah, level. Right, it's yeah. any player, quite frankly, performing at a higher level. And this is what happens, isn't it? We get so sidetracked, we just get into a conversation and it lasts 40 minutes on one subject. We have like 15 to 20 questions that we're supposed to get through and this oh is the gosh, fourth one. So I, I, I so apologize for everyone yeah. out there. Be a <laughs> hopefully this is uh, of, of great value, mm-hmm. as I think it probably is. Practical Exposure Tasks to acclimate to being two under if you've never been two under five under if you've never been five under to where you see red showing up on your scorecard where you see circles showing up on your scorecard
1: you give me a game of course yeah, yeah. okay sorry so i thought you were about to, <laughs> to dive into something so well i've got plenty yeah, got right away from you yeah so we just did something a couple of weeks ago with with our our tuesday group yeah. and where we did a game of mandatory birdies so we did a game where you have to make birdie on the hole. And there, there's a little bit of a of a twist to it. You get three balls. And so we're playing the par three course and you get three balls. You hit the first one. And if you like where your approach is, if it's close enough to the hole, well, you get to use those extra two balls on the putt. Mm-hmm. But to play a game or that could be from going to a, from the front tees, like playing a shorter golf course, scale the golf course in, a different, in a different way. But having some kind of an on-course training activity That exposes you to, holy cow, I'm this many under par right now. And even if that's artificial to some degree, right? But, But just getting in that spot to where it's not the shock to the system when it happens uh, in competition, getting creative with how you can find that in training, I think is something worthwhile to explore. Yeah, the first one you mentioned there was
0: bridge balls or a personal best. Right. Essentially, you're playing a personal exactly. s- personal scramble where when you're done with the hole, you've, you've made a birdie and right. you're going to aggregate over time to be that six or seven under par, hopefully, or scaling the golf course, another great one. There's another one there, errorless practice, where you're going to play an entire 18 holes and you're not going to hit the shot that would then be for par. You're only going to hit number of shots on any hole that would then give you a birdie. If, it, if the birdie putt, birdie shot doesn't <laughs> right. go in, yeah. then you just pick it up and you move on to the next one. The objective being, let's take away error out of even the experience of playing golf and let's only count up at the end of our round the number of times we were under par. The ball hit the hole. The yeah. ball hit the hole in one or two less strokes than the par of the hole. And it's amazing when you take away a player trying to avoid making bogey, you're encouraging um, an aggressive mindset, which is something that we could discuss at a later point in time, but you're also encouraging a freedom of execution when essentially you've taken away error. All of a sudden you've said you can't color outside the lines. So color as freely as you want. And a player that would ordinarily make one or two buddies around goes out and can make five or six in a round of golf 18 holes from the same tees as they typical player. And they walk off the near of the round and they're like, I've never made five or six birdies before. What just happened? Yeah, We took away the handcuffs is what we took away. So you take away those handcuffs, you expose a player to the experience of, man, I've made more birdies than I've ever made before. And all of a sudden you've given them an experience of an upside potential or a performance beyond what they've ever experienced before, exposing yeah. them to being under par.
1: Yeah, I love it. Okay, so... We got through, I think, three or four questions. Yeah, we, now had, done great. we had ten. Yeah, yeah, we had ten written down. So that just means that whether you like this or not, there will be a part two. So <laughs> we're we're going to try to end the year with two of these. We'll try to sneak in another interview. But I, I think that just to kind of conclude and wrap up, we started this in July. This was something that we really just did to capture some insights from our clients. We were having these cool conversations. We wanted to make sure we capture them for us so that we were learning as coaches and better equipped to kind of affect the kind of and influence, the kind of performance that our, our clients are striving towards. And it's become this really cool project that has allowed us to flush out some ideas that we have and to talk to some really cool people. And the fact that people are listening to this and that we're getting the feedback that we get, whether that be walking down a lesson to, or a, the range at a tournament and hearing players say, Hey, I'm enjoying the podcast or the messages that we get on social media it's been it's been very fulfilling on our end something that we've enjoyed a lot so we'll we'll continue to do so we appreciate the support anything to add to that
0: yeah definitely uh there's a lot that i could add to it you mentioned a lot of why we're doing this meaning we um and i would echo that we're doing it for you the audience Uh, it's one thing for us to affect change and improvement and um, explore the terrain of improvement with the players that we get to spend time with. That's the one-to-one when we're sitting in front of someone, looking them in the eye eye and and talking with them. But it's another thing to be able to uh, affect change on a level of one too many. And that's the reason we do this. And for those out there that don't know Corey, Corey is a big believer in Christmas and Santa Claus. And (laughs) before he sent his letter off to Santa this year, I caught eyeshot of it. And on his letter to Santa, believe it or not, he requested for um, more people to share the podcast. So you can play Santa for Corey and myself, quite frankly, for the Earn Your Edge podcast by sharing it, sharing it to family, friends, sharing it in a text string to all of your associates and the more you share it the more we get to share our message with a greater audience which then serves not only the people that you love and care about but um but serves our goal or our orientation to uh, to do more because we're a do more uh, group of people here at altus so thank you for listening thanks for spending what are we at an hour with us here, yeah, 50 uh, here right minutes.
1: now yeah 15 minutes we did good okay okay till next time
0: cheers signing off for now all right
1: see ya Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.